I am Darnell Moore, and this is Being Seen. An in-depth exploration of culture's role in resolving the tensions between how we are seen and how we see ourselves. Focused on the gay and queer Black male experience, the first season is a space to explore culture with leading artists, writers, activists, and entertainers. If we create nuanced and accurate cultural portrayals of identity and experience, we have an opportunity to reduce stigma and change perception, impacting everything from HIV to institutional inequity. I spent uh, a summer in Detroit at what was called the Detroit AIDS Project. And that's notable because it wasn't a department. It wasn't an office. It wasn't designed as if it was a commitment long-term. Project sounds like something we're going to deal with and move on, right? Uh, Which was not atypical for the time. But I was doing work in the School of Public Health as well as medical school. And so I spent a month there trying to work on increasing the number of primary care providers who became educated in treating and diagnosing HIV. And so I was working on a project with that. But there was one particular hospital that where a lot of individuals who uh, were living with HIV and who were sick enough and actually had AIDS and were hospitalized, were hospitalized. And that hospital put people who were HIV infected behind a red door. And now that's where the tears come. I just found that so appalling that people were being sort of set apart and treated in a way that sort of labeled them. Those red doors are stigma, and they still exist. We pass by them every day. They are in our communities and our churches and sometimes in our own families and homes. They might even exist inside ourselves. And they shouldn't because they cause so much hurt and pain. They make people feel less than, and they sometimes can even put people's lives at risk. For every red door we build, or allowed to be built around us, we lose something. We lose a chance to fully love and appreciate the human being that is shut behind it. But we can change this. Dismantle the doors, eradicate stigma, because... We have that power. We can recognize that people living with HIV are deserving of every love and consideration. We can build communities that include them, that embrace them with the care they deserve. And we can do that starting right now. We may hear the word stigma often, or not often enough, but either way, we need to think deeply about its meaning. What does it feel like? What are the specificities of those feelings in our bodies and in our hearts? Emil Wilbekin, founder of Native Son, collaborator on this podcast, and a dearest friend. When I think of stigma, I think about thoughts and ideas and judgments that other people place on you. And I think about false judgments, right? And kind of judging who you are based on anything, based on your race, based on your sexual identity, on your sexual presentation, on your health status, particularly as an HIV positive person. I think there's a lot of stigma that's placed on us. 
I think for me, when I think of stigma and I feel it in my body, it depends. Sometimes I feel it. I experience a lot of things like in my gut and in my chest. But sometimes with stigma, it's a little more emotional. It's in my mind and you kind of, it takes you to different places, right? It triggers you to think negative thoughts about yourself. I think about it physically also as anxiety, right? Like being judged or thought about in a negative way about things that I don't feel negative about, that I don't hold kind of shame around, um, but other people do. Um, So that makes me anxious. And then I think sometimes that anxiety can reveal itself in kind of like rapid heartbeat and actually kind of take over and distress feeling of feeling very tired right? And feeling very emotionally drained. And I think I grew up a lot experiencing stress, being bullied, being called faggot. I was overweight, so it was always a lot of fat jokes. I was effeminate, so it was always being, you know, labeled as she, kind of misgendered and teased a lot. And I'm a sensitive person, so I kind of absorb all of that. And so it affects me in different ways. And it can also affect me as like wanting to stress eat or wanting to drink and numb myself or just simply climb in the bed and hide under the covers. So I think it it can affect my physical being in many, many different ways. How many times have you heard HIV is just like any other disease? Well, it isn't because of its associations the stereotypes and misperceptions that we gave it, that we've attached to it through our fears, through a lack of education, and because it's become a vehicle for a lot of anger, shame, and hurt. But that's not the disease, that's us. And we need to make sure we are loving on people living with HIV by letting all of that go. Kimberly Smith, Head of Research and Development at Vive. You mentioned the the bad old days. And that story, which is heartbreaking, HIV, AIDS, we have grappled with um, this for decades. And in that time, in in a lot of ways, there have been advancements in terms of treatments, right? And the standard of care, which in some ways have far outpaced some of the sociocultural advancements that could impact how we think about the disease, right? One of those is stigma. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it is that we are, in terms of the science, have been able to sort of move forward in terms of the sort of science of the heart? <laughs> um, we still have some work to do. What, what, is, what is up with that? You know, I think that it was, so, it was so bad from the beginning where, you know, just every negative label that you could place on a person was placed on individuals living with HIV. It was just the worst you possibly can imagine. And I think that it was so bad and people were so uneducated about it that even today, as people have learned more, they just never took the time to understand enough about how wrong all of the labels and the stereotypes and the misinformation, how bad it was. I also think that there was such fear and hysteria at the time that, again, unless you took the time to learn something and get to know about the disease and more information, 
if it wasn't affecting your life directly, you didn't take the time to know about it. And so that stigma persisted and still persists. I think it's better than it was, but it's not gone. And so, you know, people still carry a lot of self-stigma because it's been ingrained in them from their interactions with every aspect of the world, from their families to the healthcare environment, to, you know, travel to even still places in the world where you, you can't travel. You know, there's just so many places where people are confronted by it. There's reasons for people to still have carry that self-stigma. And so, you know, we still have a tremendous amount of fight to get rid of that. But I do push back on the notion that, you know, HIV is just like every other disease and say it's just like high blood pressure or it's just like diabetes, while it is treatable like those, they never carried that kind of stigma. They never had that. HIV and typecasting. There is no one type of person who is living with HIV. The people who have this experience are as diverse as we are. Fathers, brothers, grandfathers, artists, businessmen, sports stars, you name it. That's why we need to see and embrace the individual, make space for them to be as multidimensional and complex as everybody else. Kimberly Smith, head of research and development at Vive. And given that, I'm even more specifically, I'm thinking about the, the type of misperceptions around that, that impact Black gay men in particular. What are some of those misperceptions or stigmas around the type of Black gay men who is living with HIV? Oh, my God. It's, you know, so when I when I think about, uh, you know, in, in the 20 years of HIV treatment, you know, where I took care of patients, I met every type of Black man you can imagine I, I took care of living with HIV from your banker to your grandfather, who most of the conversation was about fishing, and then I would be able to talk about his treatment, to guys who are homeless on the street, to guys who had just gotten out of jail, to just anybody you can, you can imagine. And so the stereotype that it is, all the negative stereotypes that says that it is only men who are a particular type of man, that uh, are living with HIV are all wrong. They just don't fit. And the notion that individuals are not invested in their health, not able to adhere to taking their medications, not interested in prevention, all of those things are also not true. Not committed and not in monogamous relationships, that that stereotype is, is so, so wrong. So all of them, I mean, the reality is that that, you know, black gay men are just like any other demographic, that the diversity of their lives is as diverse as anyone else. And I, I experienced that in taking care of men for many years. If we have experienced stigma or if the people we love have, what are the tools that we have that might allow us to push back against it? What power and practice can be found in empathy and affirmation? Emil Wilbekin, 
I recently had a conversation with a woman who was born HIV positive. And it was really interesting because I realized that it was the first time since I've been positive, which is, you know, almost 20 years now, where I spoke to a straight woman, cisgender woman, about being HIV positive. And in the conversation, what was really interesting was that we share a lot of the same stigma that we receive from the public and a lot of shame that we live with about our status, but also our bodies and around sex. And it was interesting to me because I was like, oh, this is so fascinating that a Black cisgender straight woman goes through the same internal monologue that I do as a Black gay man living with HIV. And so I think it was helpful for me, right? Because I didn't suddenly feel like I'm in this box or that I am something's wrong with me, but also understanding that someone else who is not the same gender as me is going through the same exact trauma and shame and judgment and stigma and processing that I'm going through. I mean, some of the things, some of the shame and stigma that I feel about myself and my body um, because of my HIV status. Like sometimes I just, I don't feel attractive. Sometimes I don't feel like I want to be vulnerable because it's like, hey, I'm naked. I want to have sex and I want to have a good time and I want to be sensual and I want to be intimate. But it's like I have this shadow on me because I live with this virus. Even though I take medication and I'm undetectable, I still go through these thoughts of, am I worthy? Am I enough? Am I attractive? Does that make me less attractive because I'm HIV positive? Um, And then it questions, you know, that triggers other questions, right? About my physicality, about the way I see my body, um, the way the world sees me. And, you know, being with partners, like, are they okay with it? Are they scared of contracting the virus, even though it's almost an impossibility. And I think some of these thoughts and and eventual conversations are helpful to make other people realize the similarities that we have and that we live with that, you know, you may feel as a woman, as a trans person, just about yourself. But on your best day, what do you say back to yourself? How do you change that narrative? On my best day, I affirm myself. I really and literally practice affirmations every day. It's like I think of three things. A lot of them are around that I'm a beautiful human being, right? And that one comes up a lot because I have to reaffirm myself that I'm attractive, that I am beautiful. And that doesn't just mean physically beautiful, right? That I'm beautiful as mind, body, and spirit. That I am, as a human being, beautiful. A lot of other things that I think about is being courageous, being strong, being fearless. I have a trans friend who she told me about, she started doing the affirmations and she would do three affirmations every day, but she would also look at herself naked in the mirror every day. And she had to learn to love herself in a way that was her armor, right? And and I love that. Like, it resonated so strongly with me. 
And so I do as often as I can, um, if I'm getting ready to take a shower or a bath, like look at myself naked in the mirror. And, you know, I'm older, I'm, you know, thick because of the pandemic and being isolated and quarantined, but loving that anyway. And I think that's what we have to do. I think a lot of the work that I do with Native Sun is about us loving ourselves first. So I know that sometimes therapy and just being able to talk about your HIV status or other mental health issues is a privilege for many people. Many people live in situations where they can't do that. And so I don't take that for granted. But what I think we all can do, and you have to figure out what is that internal mechanism for yourself, be that faith, be that meditation, be that affirmations, what can you pour into yourself to counter the negative stereotypes, judgments, stigmas that other people try to put on us as Black people, queer people, HIV um, positive or living with AIDS? Like, how do you, or in whatever, whoever you are, how do you counter that and support yourself as who you are? And it is not easy and it is takes work. But if you practice that, eventually you can show up fully as yourself. And when people say these negative things or hurtful things or things that are stigma or judgment, you can deflect them because you have built up your armor to protect yourself. These communities, these families can help us find our purpose. T-Boy, community advocate. All right, so the title of this show is Being Seen. So we'd love to hear not only the way that people see us, but also how we see ourselves, right? How do you think you are seen by the world? So (laughs) there can be two different views of me, how people see me. Some people can see me as the T-boy that's always fighting for justice for people, um, always willing to help people. It could be two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, I'm here. So back in 2013, when I found out my status, I kind of asked myself a question after I went through like my whole dark stages of being depressed and whatever, um, what was my purpose going to be in life? You know, like what's my purpose? And I feel like my purpose now is to be the person that, be the person to the younger generation that I didn't have when I was growing up. I didn't have a gay older person, a gay black man that I could run to and, you know, tell him my issues or push me to go to school or, you know, just care about me and like try to give me as much resources or or tell me what I need to hear and, you know, not what I like to hear. A lot of people you ask, especially my kids, my house kids, my house members, people in the Florida ballroom scene, they'll probably tell you T-Boy is like one of the people who cares about just the individual on and off the floor. Like, I just want you to make sure that, you know, you're living your life to the fullest and you are just trying to elevate, be better than you were yesterday. If last night you went to sleep at three, when you wake up tomorrow, like, try to be a four or five, you know? I think in order to understand why I was drawn to infectious diseases and HIV, it's important to understand sort of my history. And so when I was in college, I was part of a number of organizations that were 
making good trouble, anti-racist, anti-apartheid, really human rights. And in those, we challenged everything, racism, homophobia, sexism, all of that. And we learned from each other. And some of my closest friends were gay men and women. It was everything. We were all, and, and so we became an incredibly close knit group of folks. That sort of after college, I, I went to medical school. And so now you're into sort of the late 80s, early 90s when I'm in medical school. And this is sort of, you know, the bad old days of HIV when we were seeing, you know, astronomical numbers. But for me, my human rights and really just feeling like I was fighting for Black people, I understood early on that HIV, even what we were seeing on television, was mostly gay white men. This was having a huge impact on the Black community and particularly gay men in the Black community. And so I spent a lot of time with friends in New York and and major cities around. and, And many of my friends, I came to know to be living with HIV. And ultimately, sadly, at that time, they succumbed to this disease. I felt like I had to be a part of that fight. And so, you know, ACT UP was around at that time. And, you know, I I would go to those protests. I, I felt connected to HIV because of the impact that it was having on our community. And the, and the impact that I anticipated that it would have going forward. Normal. What is normal? HIV is normal. Disease is normal. What's not normal or acceptable is singling out HIV and the people who live with it as targets of a unique kind of stigma. What we see in our pages and screens can help us with that. Provide a model for another way. One where love and acceptance is normal. I want to move on and think about culture's impact on stigma and perception. We know that TV, movies, books, theater, all manner of cultural production shapes the way that we think and often imagine, experience the world. How can culture shape our understandings, perceptions of HIV and AIDS, and ultimately impact infection rates and medication adherence rates? Well, you know, what I always say is that I would really like HIV discussions to be a part of our regular day-to-day conversation, that we can talk about them. We talk about HIV or people living with HIV at the dinner table like we can talk about anything else if we make it a part, a normal part of being. And so when we talk about culture and people and their experience and what they watch on television and what they talk about, normalizing it making it a part of the day-to-day experience, I think is really important. And so when it comes to gay men in particular, what I'm always pleased by is when I see uh, Black gay men portrayed on, you know, on television, in movies, in their full diversity, in the whole from the Black gay man who happens to be a cop, who the Black gay man who happens to be a doctor, the Black gay man that's a dancer, all that diversity, so that you see real people. You see it as a normal part of living. So what could that look like? 
to create roles that feel like real representations, to see our literal selves on stage, our stories set in our communities. In 2016, Vive Healthcare was a partner on another project about the power of representation, as much as I can, that in many ways inspired this podcast. It was a play. It was a platform. It was the stories of incredible men from the South like Antoine, activist and scholar. So several years ago, you were part of a project that was initiated by Vive Healthcare, right? The project was specific, it was personal, and it gave them access into your life. It allowed them into your life so that they could try to better understand HIV from the perspective of Black, young Black queer men, young Black gay men, right? In the South. So why did you decide to participate? What motivated you to be part of that project? And what really interests me in the project was being able to put my life to the forefront in different aspects and bring other young Black queer males' perspectives to HIV activism. Because initially, it's like the stories are always, we pity people who go through and living with HIV. We pity the queer Black male, et cetera. But I wanted the world to see me as resilient and someone who's an activist and a scientist and um, have different identities and complex social determinants that I go through every day. So it was a chance to show the world that even though I'm dealing with HIV and living with it, being Black and queer in America is just my story and I can make it any way I want it. So initially, it's not this sad pity story. It's always... um, were important and what really made this project special to me was the engagement with the audience so it felt like at some points they were talking right to you they'll look at you they would the actors weren't just acting some of them were living out their lives as well it was a difference when you just kind of like hire somebody to play out roles but people were playing out their lives and their different aspects of hurt and journeys so when I think about those components, it made it very different because it captured the crowd in a different way. It was very emotional to see how individuals who have never been introduced to this type of work or they heard about HIV but really didn't know about HIV and then to be able to be in something so informal and so engaging and like to make them understand the different complex realities of like HIV and thinking about science and thinking about art and all these different things and emotions and expressions. I've watched individuals cry. I've watched individuals awe. I've watched individuals simply be baffled through the idea because they didn't know that in some type of ways their biases play into how people feel. So how do we create change? How do we move people towards acceptance and love? One way is through our communities, the ones that exist and the ones we create. Emil Wilbekin and Kimberly Smith. The idea of Native Son is simple. It is about creating safer spaces for Black and queer men to have fellowship, to inspire each other, to empower each other, and to celebrate each other. And so when I first started the movement, 
One thing I did was a listening tour and I met with different black gay and queer men who I didn't know. And I asked them questions about their coming out story, their HIV status, their careers, their relationships. Were they in love? Were they partnered? Were they married? Did they want to have kids? Did they have kids? And in doing so, there were so many similarities, even within the differences. And I think that that's what Native Son does. And that's what I think community does, is how do you create a community of people who are like-minded, who are similar values? And how do you share the good things and the bad things? And then how do you create a community of support? And so support to me means we aren't judgmental of each other. And if someone falls down or makes a mistake, you lift them up, you comfort them, you talk to them. You don't ostracize them. You don't dismiss them. You don't judge them. And that is hard, right? Because I think when we're judging people, if you want to go real deep with it, you're really projecting something that you don't like about yourself or an issue that you have within yourself or hold true to yourself onto someone else. And that, I think, is how do you dismantle that? And so for me with Native Son, it was really important to create this community of Black, gay, and queer men globally. Yes. And then my last question is really about the role, types of roles doctors can play when it comes to connecting to patients, to people, and creating a more equitable power dynamic where there is an authentic partnership around care and treatment. I think there's a role for both doctors or healthcare providers to play, but also I think that the person on the other side, when we go in as the patient, we have a role to play too, in that we've got to take some ownership and go in and be demanding. It has to be, otherwise it's not gonna work well. So I encourage docs to really get to know their patients. And then on the patient side, it is important that you go in and challenge that, that that person should be hearing you and paying attention to you. They need to be understanding what your needs are rather than just writing the same script for every person that, run, that, that walks in the office. You know, I would see patients, when we would start talking about HIV treatment, I would show them several options for treatment. I say, this one has this pro and con, this one has this pro and con, this one has this pro and con. Which one fits into your life best. And that way, we're doing this together, and there's an investment in that. There's an investment in the selection of the medicine, and, and, and let, you know, we're working through that. And so, you know, it's got to be a relationship. And what we live, what we experience, what we document together becomes our archive, our proof of life, and a demonstration of the fullness and the worthiness of our existence, Emil Wilbekin. So I think archiving is really important. I mean, I am a pack rat Virgo. I keep everything because I want there to be a legacy and evidence of my existence long after I'm gone. I'm not keeping these things because of my ego now. I'm keeping these things because I have intentionally done work to elevate and amplify and change the narratives of my community. And so one of the things that's very important to me 
with Native Son. And I think it's very obvious when you look at our social media and the fact that Instagram is our biggest um, platform, the largest community gathers there because it's an archive. It is an archive that we exist. It is an archive that we are successful. It's an archive that we are able to be loved and in happy, healthy relationships. It's an archive that we can have kids. It's an archive that we are successful in breaking barriers in culture, in politics, in finance, in art. And that I think about our ancestors and how many people we don't know that existed that literally have been erased. They've disappeared. How do we unearth the people that came before us? How are we capturing and celebrating who is doing the work right now and how we exist right now? And then what does it look like in the future? For me, archiving is self-actualization. It is really holding on to the memories, the moments, the images, the diplomas, the the artwork, the choreography, whatever it is, the family, right? The community, the friendship, the squads that we exist, that we live, and that we matter, right? That we're whole, that we're enough. I, I can't say this enough, and I say it at every Native Sun gathering, is that we are worthy and we are enough. And when you think that you are worthy and enough, and you know that you are worthy and enough, then you want to capture those images. You want to capture that video. You want to share your existence uh, so that we can, in my opinion, support generations to come so that they don't have to go through the trauma, the pain, the isolation, the feelings of unworthiness and the stigma that society and colonization puts on us. Hear this. You are worthy and you are enough. If you are living with HIV, you are worthy of love. Self-love, romantic love, communal love. But if you have judged, if you have shamed, if you have put up a red door in front of someone who deserved so much more, you too are worthy. Worthy of learning how to love even when you are afraid and accept even when you don't understand. We have the treatments, the medicines to end the HIV epidemic among gay and queer Black men. What we don't always have is others' commitments to love us, to lift us up, to see us, to affirm us so that we know we are valued, so that our families, our churches, our communities, and our neighborhoods become spaces that protect us and support us in caring for ourselves. That is a medicine that we also need. One that takes away stigma. One that each of us has the power to give. Being Seen is produced by Harley and Company and Darnell Moore and created in partnership with Beeve Healthcare. Theme music is provided by Moses Sumney.